You are listening to the Mary Jane Society Podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, Marketing Director for Studio 420. Today, my guest is Sarah Hashkis, Head of Scientific Research into Psychedelics at Red Light Holland and CEO of Radix Motion. She has a master's in cognitive neuroscience and developed a VR technology to induce neuroplasticity that explains what psychedelics do to the brain. Sarah and her team at Red Light Holland are ahead of science in understanding psychedelics. Listen to the latest episode to take a deep dive into the newest tech in psychedelic research. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Welcome. Thanks. So I thought if you could just give us a, a and I'm really excited to get into psychedelics. And I have to say, I've, I've been highly focused on the cannabis industry. So I could talk all about mm-hmm. that cultivation, extraction and everything. But, I, you know, it's kind of new to me. So I apologize. And I'm, I'm really going to kind of learn from you. So um, I appreciate you being patient mm-hmm. with me. <laughs> um, so yeah, would love to get a, an overview of your background, um, how you started Radix Motion, and how you came into psychedelics and to work with uh, Red Light Holland. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I guess my academic background starts uh, with physics, and then I did a master's in cognitive neuroscience which is where I started to research psychedelics. Um, This is back in 2015-16. And it, of course, is uh, quite hard still to get approval for um, getting the actual psilocybin and materials uh, to do these types of trials. Uh, So after publishing one paper, I pivoted into virtual reality um, as a technique to induce plasticity. There's some similarities, some differences in the way psychedelics and virtual reality work, but uh, virtual reality is a lot easier (laughs) to be able to do experiments. And I really wanted to finish academia. Um, And uh, yeah, my interest in psychedelics was really coming from a very personal place. It uh, It was extremely beneficial for me and I was very lucky when I was uh, studying in the Netherlands to really be able to do this with people who had uh, experience and um, could provide, you know, the first sort of uh, a friendship guidance uh, for my first trips. And the first time I did it was so amazing that I just needed to figure out what was going on in my brain. Like, how was this? The the nagging voice, you know, the very self-critical voice that is a constant thing in my life was just quiet. And that was, uh, I was very low dose. I didn't, you know, I jump in very, or I dip my toes in first, but that was enough for me to sort of realize this huge potential uh, and start exploring on myself more and then, yeah, researching and figuring out um, how to use it as a tool for growth, for uh, changing patterns uh, that, and, and healing traumas that I've been carrying with me since childhood. Um, and uh, yeah, when I, I moved out to Silicon Valley after my studies, I knew I wanted to start a startup and not really stay in academia. And I knew that's sort of the easiest place to find money, to found a co-founder. Um, and it worked out pretty great. I found a, an amazing co-founder, Matt Ho, in a hacker space in San Francisco. And we raised some money um, in order to create um, 
uh, virtual reality and immersive technology for health and wellness. Um, so again, to use uh, uh, this research that I came out with in order to induce plasticity in the brain with virtual reality. And we had a few different prototypes out there. Um, and uh, my first client was actually Red Light Holland. And they really liked what we built for them. We built them a experience in virtual reality that explains what psychedelics do to the brain. So this was the first time that we, I could bring both my research topics together and both my passions. Um, and that went really well. And then I built them um, um, the microdosing app. And as they grew, they acquired my company and were now their tech division. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I have to say, I've, I've been following Todd Shapiro a little bit, and he's just amazing how he's strategically putting all these different companies like yours together, building this one big company to, you know, enter the psychedelic world. Um, yeah, I really like it because there is a very holistic view on, on mental health that includes, you know, eating healthy, changing patterns. We call it the microdosing lifestyle. Even if you don't microdose, you can take a lot from that lifestyle to be present with yourself, to increase mindfulness. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a very interesting company to be part of. And I think really we're, as far as I know, almost the only publicly traded company uh, that is actively selling psilocybin in the Netherlands and really promoting legalization um, under this responsible use model around the world. And that's also a big part of my work um, is to work with our lobbyists and grassroots organizations to try to provide people with the same access that people in the Netherlands have. Hmm. So, yeah, so I just want to clarify that, you know, for people who are listening and for myself is, so I know in the Netherlands that you can legally sell the truffle mushrooms, right? And yeah, so truffles, just to be a bit clear on that, because that's always a confusing part, yes, that's sort yeah. of the common word, but what it actually means is that it's sclerotia. It's the part of the fungus that grows underground. So we have right a, a fungus is made out of mycelium and there's parts of it that sometimes grow on top of the ground, which we call mushrooms and help the, the fungus propagate. And then there's parts of it that grow underground. Um, and that's sort of the, the storage. You know, if things don't go well, uh, um, the fungus can always go back to that storage that it kept safe uh, in the sclerotia and, and keep itself alive. So it's a very fascinating um, um, organism, uh, funguses, of course. Uh, and that is uh, legal. So they call it truffles because it's underground and you know truffles are a type of mushroom that grows underground, but it's not really a truffle. It's a sclerotia, yeah. And so, it has um, the same psilocybin that um, mushrooms do. So it's really why, a sort of loophole, yeah. Yeah, so why, why, do they, why do they only allow the underground portion of the psilocybin plant to be sold? Yeah, it, it used to be that they also allowed the mushrooms and then the government at some point um, shut that down and then there was a loophole and it went to court and that loophole is still there and legal, absolutely legal. It, um, it, so that's, that's how things have been going for the last uh, well, quite a few years. That's ignorance on their part, right? Because I mean, isn't isn't you're you're saying that the truffle has the same uh, dosing? So the way the Dutch government works is it's very practical, right? It's also the same uh, with sex work, and sort of the reason why we're called Red Light Holland is a lot of people ask us what why this name, 
but that's also because of this legal framework that is a very practical framework in the Netherlands. They're not necessarily supportive. They're not necessarily sex positive or drug positive, but they're also understand that people are going to do these things. So they create these regulations to keep everybody happy. So the people that didn't want mushrooms and, you know, mushrooms had a sort of brand that, that was causing uh, issues from different parts of the government. So they became happy because you shut something down, but all the people that are actually using this are still okay because they still have access to pretty much the same uh, thing. They have regulations that you can't do any type of processing on this. So it needs to really just be the, the natural um, truffle or sclerotia, which is a bit weaker because when you dehydrate, usually when you buy mushrooms, they're dehydrated. So when you take out all the moisture, they become more uh, potent per gram. Um, so when you're selling them now in the stores that with the, the wetness and you know water content inside of them, they're not as strong. So supposedly that, um, you know, for tourists at least can create a, a better balance when they're starting out to not uh, take too much. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. So it's the, it's kind of similar to the decarboxylation in cannabis, would, which activate, activates the THC. So it's the dehydration in mushrooms that activate. It doesn't activate. No, they're absolutely active. It's just you need to eat a lot more because you're oh, eating oh. more. Okay. So, so when you dehydrate them, it's enough to do one gram, but if not, you need to do you know, okay. three, four, and um, these things are not the most delicious um, right. thing. So uh, people don't eat as much as much. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, so you wrote the first academic paper uh, using the predictive coding frameworks to explain what psychedelics do in the brain. Can you give us kind of an overview of what you wrote? How does psilocybin work in the brain? And does this have anything to do with what you were talking about earlier that VR in, um, induces plasticity in the brain similar to psilocybin? Is, yeah, I can give a, a quick overview. Yeah. That is, that's what um, you're talking about? Yeah, so um, first of all, of course, this work is based on a lot of uh, science that came before me, especially Robert, Robin Cardheit Harris's work around the entropic brain. But I sort of formalized it was in the predictive coding framework. And it took them, I think, two more years to come out with a similar paper, which for me was a, a very, uh, very cool as a student to sort of be ahead of the science. Um, and the predictive coding framework looks at our brain as a prediction machine that doesn't have any access to the outside world. We're only getting information from our senses. And based on the information from our senses, we need to make a prediction of what's causing uh, these sensations in order to navigate our place in the world. And um, in, in the predictive coding framework, we call this reduce entropy. But that really just means reduce the possible states we can be in because as biological creatures, right, some states are livable, some states are not. Um, and the way the brain does this is by using a, a form of Bayesian statistics, meaning it uses information that it learned in the past and combines that information with whatever is coming into the senses. And I really like giving people a metaphor because most of us are yes. very visual thinkers. And the metaphor I usually give is, um, if you imagine that you're on a beach filled with sand and you're building sand castles. Now the sand is like the information that's coming into your senses. There's so much of it, right? It's noisy, it's everywhere. 
and you have these buckets that you are now trying to fill the sand in. And these buckets are based on what you've learned in the past, perhaps even from the womb, perhaps even, you know, these social constructs. Um, and sometimes we call these things even hyper priors, things that are really potentially even in our genetic code, uh, the way we perceive the world. And we use these buckets to then create our reality. And reality isn't uh, um, a thing that we just perceive as a, a subjects, where it's something that's really a creative force. And I think that is really the biggest insight within this predictive coding framework is that we uh, have a lot more, uh, you know, bigger ability to shift our sense of reality based on these buckets, right? Now, it's very hard, of course, if you're born in a place that uh, you've had some specific traumas or haven't gotten your basic needs met, that is going to really um, shape your worldview. And this is the magic of psychedelics. What they do is they take these buckets and they break them down. If you look at where the receptors in the brain are exactly situated, they're situated on these top-down connections that are basically what is creating these buckets. So we're, we're lowering the threshold of firing for the, these parts of the brain and allowing them to fragment and become different shaped buckets, different size buckets, not the usual buckets that we know. And when that happens, uh, you get what's called more prediction error because there's so much sand and these broken down buckets now, they can't really deal with all that sand <laughs> that they're used to dealing with, with it's just the usual buckets. So your brain starts um, moving around the extra sand and be like, oh, maybe this part of the brain can actually explain the sand. Maybe this part of the brain can explain the sand. And this is how we get effects like synesthesia. And you might have seen the, the famous sort of a, a poster or image where you see different parts of the brain are connected much more when you're using psilocybin. So that's sort of the reason why it happens is because there's so much of this prediction error that can't be explained with your usual buckets that your brain needs to now come up with different mechanisms to reduce this prediction error. So uh, this is sort of the basics of uh, yeah how classical psychedelics and classical psychedelics you know are, include uh, mushrooms and um, uh, DMT uh, ayahuasca but they don't include things like MDMA and ketamine. I think that's really important to keep reminding people because we see a lot of the times. And media, they all box these things together, but they're really not the same thing. And classical psychedelics have a very, very safe uh, profile. They're non-addictive in any way. Um, there's virtually no ability to overdose on them and they all activate the same 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the basics of psychedelics. And the difference between VR is I can't break down people's top-down buckets. This is something that really only psychedelics can do, but I can start playing with the sand. I can start playing with the bottom-up sensations in ways that increase the prediction error. I can put people in different bodies. I can change the laws of physics. Um, I can, you know, in my experiments, when people were moving their right hand, they were seeing their left hand move. So I can really create a lot of plasticity there that now your brain needs to deal with. So I can cause the secondary effects of psychedelics by something else, right? Um, and these secondary effects are what create that plasticity because they're connecting different parts of the brain uh, that weren't usually connected and letting the brain learn uh, new patterns. Can you use VR? And so you use VR and psychedelics together as a treatment to 
No, actually, I'm one of the propagators of saying uh, each of these modalities is very powerful, and I do not recommend uh, combining them at the same time. I think there's a, a, a strong use case of using VR, or, uh, like we're doing more as a preparation. When you try our VR ex exper experience, it teaches you what psychedelics do. It gives you a little bit of a taste. We can create synesthesia. We can create this outer body sensation. So you can be a little bit more prepared for what might happen under uh, uh, psychedelics. It gives you this uh, scientific model that helps anchor you in the best knowledge that we have currently. Because uh, like we've seen, the brain, the brain is really great at jumping to new buckets and making up new stories. So a lot of times we're seeing when people go through psychedelic um, retreats, if they don't have this uh, model of science, they can come back with very far-fetched uh, beliefs. And sometimes these beliefs are harmless and they help them and it's okay, but who, who knows, right? So personally, as a scientist, this is something that's very important for me to at least give people an accessible understanding of this scientific model that I think is very useful to navigate psychedelic situations. You know, it's very anchored in me. So I know that even if I'm having a very difficult or scary um, experience on psychedelics, I know that it's my brain that's creating it. I know that uh, I, I'm not seeing actual wolves that are running after me, but that it's some type of uh, my subconscious presenting it to me uh, in a way that I, I can learn from or, or change or interact with. And I think that's very important to understand when you're you know, starting to explore these substances is they're not showing you some ultimate reality. They're not showing you uh, a different dimension. They're showing you what's inside of you. And that's magnificent. That's magical. The level of complexity that we have with 86 billion neurons and trillions of connections, you know, we are the most complex structure that we know of in this galaxy and universe. And uh, being able to sort of look into your operating system is what psychedelics um, do. And by looking into our operating system, we have an opportunity to then start um, modifying it, upgrading it in little places. But again, the, the, I'm also very cautious about this like higher consciousness. There's no, there's no such thing. <laughs> you know, We have, again, very complex brain, and we have an ability to learn how to be kinder to ourselves, to the environment, to our friends, learn how to uh, be maybe more, more functional to our current environments. Because a lot of people, again, they, they adapted to uh, early stage conditions when our brain was very plastic. And that doesn't necessarily benefit us now. And maybe it did back then. And I think that's our therapist. We work with a therapist, Jeff Hamburg. Um, that's something he, he uh, was reminding me. And when we, we made this uh, mindfulness program uh, that we're coming out with, with a biofeedback device, you know, that's, that's a very big thing for, for brains to understand and be grateful for the fact that we did have these adaptive traits because they helped us. Obviously, we're here. Right, so whatever adaptive trait that we had as a child or as a teenager or a baby um, that got us to where we are, it it worked. Um, and but it might not work anymore. So you know, it might be time to say thank you and let's try something else. You started out with your brain as a baby, and then all the things that you do to your brain, abuses, let's or you know, drinking or bad eating habits, and then the connections change in your brain. Is so? Is that what? microdosing does is it kind of puts you back to where you are or just gives you more just fluid movement into shape it better so you're saying we were more plastic more 
rigid, un unformable in a way, but now because of psychedelics and other things, we can. So we have, it starts really from the womb already, right? This is when we start learning uh, and adapting to traits. And the brain goes through various developmental stage where it becomes hyperplastic. Lots of connections happen. And then uh, there's a process that's called pruning, where if you don't use these pathways or whatever pathways you do use get strengthened, but whatever you don't use gets cut off. Like if you imagine a tree branch and, and literally you know, neurons look like little tree branches. So whatever isn't being used and, and hasn't been connected gets cut off. So there is some evidence that shows that psychedelics can take us back to this type of developmental stage where these neurons can start actually regrowing these, these new pathways um, to, to remake these connections. And again, you know, there's a lot of research that we still need to do. And this type of research in humans is especially hard because um, we, we're not opening up uh, uh, brains and uh, looking at how the neurons grow. Um, but this is uh, the theory of what we think is happening. Now, microdosing is very interesting. There's also been uh, less research on this. There's been virtually very little research on, on um, patient populations. So most of the research that has been done with microdosing is on healthy people. And I keep being very confused why people that don't have depression or anxiety, why there's an expectation that their non-existent depression or anxiety will be uh, improved in, uh, in you know, the forms, the questionnaires that they fill out uh, while microdosing. So we really do need um, research that is on people who do have uh, anxiety or ADHD or um, uh, depression on microdosing to be able to see uh, and learn more of what's going on there. Um, we do know a few things, though, that, that have been starting to pop up lately, and we're, we are seeing um, effects on the brain waves. So we're seeing the brain waves of people that are on microdosing actually change in a similar pattern that we see on larger doses, which means that the slower waves are weaker. And the slower waves are, again, correlated to our buckets. So potentially this, the same thing is happening, but not to this very large degree. It's, it's probably, you know, this grayscale. Um, there's no necessarily like cutoff of, of uh, uh, how plastic or connected your brain can be. Um, and, you know, the, the one interesting research that they did do with a patient population was OCD. And they did see an improvement with a microdose. And I think that's definitely OCD and people who you know, are in some type of pattern that they can't break. I think there, there might be very interesting potential for microdosing for that. Um, but also we're seeing things like migraine headaches. This is more in, you know, what we're calling anecdotal research or just uh, people, uh, Paul, Paul Stamets uh, has huge uh, amounts of people filling out uh, non-clinical research, but it's still uh, big data is also quite valid and things from uh, migraines to potentially even improving on, on PMS and, um, symptoms. So really very, very interesting um, field to explore. And um, especially, I'm also very fascinated to see if it can help people uh, with uh, um, ADHD. I think um, this is one of the things that you know we came out with this microdosing app also to try to gather more big data from people that are doing this in the Netherlands. Um, they have access to our therapist, Jeff Hamburg, there. Um, and if they want to, uh, we are very privacy first. This is part of why I got into tech to, you know, uh, lead, lead by example of, of how I would like my data to be treated. So um, you need to really opt in 
to share your data at, uh, and, and we have no uh, identifying information about you. Uh, but um, we are seeing um, around 50% of people are, are willing for, uh, for us to uh, examine their data. And we're seeing interesting patterns that uh, the younger generation is indeed using this to help them with focus. And oh, I think really? I think that uh, that might be very interesting to yeah to to look into because currently the ADHD medications you know are are they work on the dopamine system and they have a lot a lot of side effects. Uh, we don't talk about it so much, but they're very addictive. Um, they I've had two friends at least that have gone through like actual psychotic breakdowns from abuse of Adderall. Yes, um, Adderall is awful. I've, yeah. I've witnessed that myself in a couple young kids like under yeah. 30. They're crazy. Yeah. They're, they're, they're absolutely like, um, yeah. And the dopamine system is what tells our brain what out of the sand and the sand metaphor, which sand is important. So just imagine we're tweaking with what our brain uh, thinks is important and messing that whole uh, um, structure up. The long term, it really has big effects of megalomaniac thinking and um, loss of plasticity. It's almost like, uh, um, yeah, so I, I really, and obviously some people really need it, but my general belief is that it is way overprescribed um, and I've seen a, a lot of abuse and unhealthy patterns with it. So if there's a chance that microdosing can be some type of alternative to that, I think that's uh, very interesting. And, and yeah, and I'm hoping we get to see more and more research uh, in the years to come. And, and with um, people who are trying to treat these certain issues like PTSD, anxiety, alcoholism, depression. So is that something that is just regular microdosing Listen, we can't make any medical claims, right? This is, we're way early in the stage to make, uh, even on, on like high doses of psychedelics, nothing has, until there's this sort of yes, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. we need to be very careful with that. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the path to healing is very individual. And I think we need to be very careful of jumping to a conclusion that psychedelics or microdosing is a, is a solution for everything. Yeah. Um, neither small dose or big dose is a solution for anything. It's uh, I love uh, Susan Blackmore has a, an amazing quote about you know psychedelics can show you the top of the mountain, but you're gonna need to reach there by yourself uh, because once the the drug effect is is gone, you're back again uh, in your daily life, and and you've seen that glimpse of a new pattern of some things that can be done differently. And now it's up to you to engrave these patterns on a daily basis. And that's why what we're trying to do is really build support structures around the use of psychedelics, whether it's microdosing or macrodosing, but build uh, support structures that again, include our, our therapists, include community events. Um, we're building uh, hardware that will um, help bring mindfulness home. It's called, if you go to wisdomtruffle.com, we're very close to, to launching it. It's a biofeedback device. And the other, the, the bigger one will actually encourage you to put your phone down and it'll keep your phone safe and charge it. So trying to get uh, um, behaviors that, that can actually help us uh, on our daily life and give us back our dopamine because these cell phones and screens and our modern day of life has really hijacked 
our dopamine uh, from us into, you know, bling, 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 notifications and something's happening. <laughs> yeah, something's and happening. It's <laughs> happening all the time. Um, and we, that's not, you know, healthy long-term. That causes most people to be very anxious and high stressed. And we don't take time for the things that really recharge us, which really is very basic things. It's connection, right? Connection to our body, dancing, stretching, feeling the joy that comes from from being a physical body and then connecting to our close people and friends and partners and and nature this is it's very it's very simple and uh, part of it is i think you know capitalism has has hijacked this because these things don't cost a lot of money right like me dancing in my room by myself uh, is not something a a company um, can uh, easily capitalize on or me going to a walk in nature so um, uh, but this is really where our joy human beings as embodied creatures comes from. And I think this is uh, what I love about Red Light Holland is that, again, this holistic approach of understanding that this is what people need and how can we build a company around giving people these basic needs. Wow, what a great reminder. And I'm, I'm a perfect example of that, especially living in New York City, you know, going oh, so yeah. fast constantly feeling like okay i have to go on a walk i have to listen to a podcast i have to learn this i have to be listening to this i have to you know but it's it's true like you've got to take that that five minutes and come back to it thank you i actually that's a really good reminder i might even focus on that um but as far as the the i micro app that you developed for red light holland that is that specific is that just being tested in in uh, Amsterdam or Holland right now and well, again, it's a it's a publicly for uh, uh it's a, sorry it's a privately privacy first app so we don't know where people are from we don't ask any identifiable information uh but legally we uh, we can't encourage anybody to microdose in a place where it's uh, it hasn't been uh, uh legalized or decriminalized so, you know, we'll, all these uh, legal disclaim- disclaimers on the app that we, we do not encourage people. Uh, unfortunately, we're still seeing people actually arrested. I was trying to help a nurse and a mother um, that got arrested for microdosing. Um, and there was this whole whole big ordeal. She, um, at least she didn't got, get sent to prison eventually, but, um, you know, just, just to be uh, wary, I think it was, um, Iowa, maybe I might I might be mistaking the state, but uh, yeah, a, a red state somewhere. Um, so these things are still happening, and um, uh, people. This is this is sort of why we really do need to decriminalize and legalize every, everywhere that we can. Um, but yeah, the app. I think uh, one of the again the 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 parts that we were trying to do is is get people to make this a habit of tracking and mindfulness because microdosing really is very personal. And if you take too much, uh, we anecdotally at least see that people can have a harder time to sleep and actually become a bit more anxious. If you take too little, you're not gonna get any benefit probably. Uh, So just notice on yourself with a journal, with access to a therapist, to a community where you can write things and and get other people's advice and support. Uh, That's the idea there. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, Radix is, um, uh, Radix motion means the essence of motion. And again, coming from this embodied perspective, um, everything that we do is really also looking at uh, information that's coming from our bodies. And a lot of that is movement information, how you stand, how you pace, uh, how, you know, your jitter, your, uh, your balance, all that has high correlations to different mental health uh, 
statuses, right? And they're sort of the basics when you're hunched over or when you're leaning back. Um, we know a lot, a lot uh, uh, about these uh, uh, postures and positions. Uh, being, you know, more more depressed, you you tend to crouch inwards, look down, and of course, when you're afraid, intimidated, or or don't want something, oh. you sort of really move backwards. Um, so, uh, uh, part of what Radix uh, is trying to uh, explore and experiment is utilizing big data around body postures to get these correlations to mental health to see more, can we see an effect on the actual body of people that microdose? Do they open up? Is their movement smoother? Is their reaction time faster? Um, and this is actually, uh, Paul Stamets uh, came up with, there was tapping uh, with microdosing and they did show that people that were tapping, wait, was this Fadiman or is Paul Stamets? Don't, don't kill me if I, if I mix up. <laughs> I think it might've been Fadiman actually, but it was a tapping experiment they would tap with their finger, yeah, on the, uh, when they weren't mo microdosing and microdosing. And people above a certain age, like the older people, were actually showing improvement on tapping speeds uh, while microdosing, which is a, a very interesting effect uh, because as we grow older, we become generally right slower uh, with our reaction time and uh, our body. So that could be, again, something very interesting also to explore, but just getting this, these more objective metrics that aren't just people filling out questionnaires and saying, yes, today I feel a little bit happier. I don't feel happier. They're very subjective. Um, and this is me maybe coming again from like a physics background and less of a psychology background. So I want to see actually measurable data that we can then use to even create maybe models to. Uh, tell people, recommend to people uh, what is the dose they should do, how many times a week they, they could microdose, but we really need to get a lot of data to be able to create these models. So that's what we're trying to do to get to get this, uh, this data. Oh, wow. I mean, it's so important because the industry can't move forward in the cannabis or psychedelic industry until we have all the scientific background to, to, you know, to prove to the lawmakers and, th and to people who even want to try it. Um, so I think what you're doing is like, you're on the forefront of all this and, you know, making a difference. And, and I guess, what's the future? Like, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting few years. And I think the future is up also to us as activists, right? Uh, it's up to us to go out there and convince one state after the next, one country after the next that, you know, Oregon has done this, Colorado has done this. Now we want to do this in New York and California, uh, ev everywhere. Um, and uh, I think there's going to be, you know, within a few years, we're also going to see FDA approved uh, drugs and um, maybe some access to uh, health care and, and health insurance for those Americans who do have health insurance. Uh, but I also believe that a lot of people um, don't have access to to these types of insurances and also don't necessarily want to be medicalized and stigmatized and you know i i don't want to personally uh, need to come and say hey i'm depressed so give me this medicine i want to explore my brain and you know Im improve my patterns that that i um want to change without uh this dsm guidebook <laughs> telling yeah. me what's wrong with me necessarily. So yeah. I think this is where also the importance of decriminalization and legalization on a wider basis and programs like what we're seeing in Oregon and Colorado um, are really important because they do increase the access 
Uh, they allow people that you don't need to have any type of medical condition in Oregon uh, or Colorado uh, soon in order to get access to these substances. Um, and I think that's that's very important because there's things even just like bringing people together, doing this with the people that you love, um, doing intergenerational healing, right? There's so much potential if we could uh, uh, change the buckets from one generation to the other, but still remain with a deeper connection to uh, our ancestors and parents. I think uh, um, that's what I would like to see. So we're gonna see um, hopefully uh, uh, services that, that can really allow more people from many different backgrounds. Because some people obviously just want the, the only the doctors, but I think some people will want the opposite or just doing it themselves in nature, uh, which for me is the most healing. You know, once I, I got the handle of this, they're really just uh, going into nature and being with trees, um, I think was for me the most healing. Yeah, listening to the birds. Well, okay, I'm sorry. This is the last yeah. question. I, I have been hearing and reading people are talking about the entourage effect in, in psilocybin, similar yeah. to cannabis. Is that, is that a truth or do you see that as being possible? It's very possible. We know we don't know a lot about the other molecules at all and mushrooms, period, right? We know there's a lot of even uh, edible mushrooms or functional mushrooms that have uh, that have turned into cancer medications, right? There's the fungus world is amazing and crazy, and we know very little, but also we don't know that that is a thing. So we're a bit in a in an ambivalent state here. Um, but the, the, the profile of, yeah, of a natural mushroom obviously has a lot more of other things than something that's synthesized um, exactly to only have uh, synthetic psilocybin, um, right? There's, there's uh, um, I think, two other sort of, actually, when you eat a natural mush mushrooms, it's psilocybin, and then your gut turns it into psilocin. That's usually part of it. And there's uh, another, um, chemical there that also gets turned into psilocin but when they break down other things might happen and there's a lot of other things in the mushroom so possible yes do I have any conclusion not yet oh, yeah okay I that's what that's what I'm, I'm reading yeah that that's kind of the consensus yeah okay cool Sarah thank you for your time I mean really I super appreciate yeah, it yeah, yeah, you know, Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.